Another one of our sponsors I'm excited to tell you about is actually another podcast. It's called People of Product. And it's really about kind of highlighting the way people come together in innovative ways and create all the digital products that seem to be in every part of our lives. And what I think I like the most is that these guys are speaking from experience. You know, we had George Brooks on our show. And besides that, he's like a really genuine human being, just super knowledgeable at creating way more effective teams to get this kind of stuff done. And I really can't recommend it enough. You can find them anywhere that you get your podcasts and I recommend you checking out People of Product. So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called PillowCube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow. That's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. Then you enter into execution problems, and these execution problems are... You know, they're almost predictable because you're using a very limited bandwidth to come back to this air balloon metaphor to inflate the mutual knowledge we need to fly together as a team and, 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 and coordinate with each other. So use the communication, synchronous communication channels to start anything new or when there is anything new and then asynchronous for updates, but not the other way around. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Stefano Mastro Giacomo. He is a very intelligent individual. I'm looking forward to you guys learning from. Author of a new book, High Impact Tools for Teams, part of the series we've been doing with the folks from Strategizer. And I'm excited to have you on the show. Before we jump into anything, let's talk about, I know you're out in Geneva, Switzerland, but we were talking for just a minute before the show about your homeland of Italy. I've only been to Rome, but I'm sold. Like you, you guys, this is a great place. Everybody should go visit. <laughs> Hello, Jess. Again, thank you for having me on the show and, and welcome to our listeners. Actually, you know, I'm based in Geneva, Switzerland. I'm Italian, that's true. And I cannot go to Italy right now. And I miss my country so much because of COVID restriction. And I agree. I mean, it's definitely for those uh, listeners who haven't had a chance to visit Italy. It's, you know, first of all, art is everywhere. <laughs> you don't need like to enter a museum to see art. It's in many, many, many buildings out there. If you have a chance to visit the major spots. And there are some places like, I don't know, maybe Venice. If you never had the, the Venetian experience, you should definitely try that. I mean, it's that city is out of this world. I mean, it's a completely different uh, feeling to see water everywhere. Italy is big and there is a saying that one life is not enough to tour all the beautiful places. So happy to discuss some more areas of Italy if you feel like. So and, and what part of the country did you grow up in? I grew up in a place called Emilia Romagna, which is just on the other part, on the other side of Italy at the same um, alt latitude as Florence, but uh, it, it's on the other coast. And okay, so let's talk about food. 
So the, <laughs> the region where I come from is the, the region where tortellini were invented, where the parmesan comes from, where the uh, uh, balsamic vinegar comes from, the parma ham. And I can continue for a while, but it's also an engineering place. That's where all, uh, a lot of the motor Ferrari is based, Alfa Romeo and many other important industries in the automotive. And also fashion, it's very close to Milan. So it's like a northern, very close to Venice, but at the same altitude, latitude than Florence. That's where I grew up. You know, I in, in college, our listeners know that I originally am an art school dropout. In my English class in college, I read this book about Michelangelo called The Agony and the Ecstasy by Irving Stone. That was just incredible. And I, I've had this like lifelong yearning to get to Florence. So I was really disappointed that when I went to Rome, we didn't have time to go to Florence. But like, man, I've been to museums all over the, you know, on, on in many different countries, you know, the Tate, the Louvre, all, all these big ones, right? Rome, like the Vatican Museum that you were just talking about before we started. Yeah. I think there's more, more art per square inch than maybe anywhere else on earth. I mean, like you go to a normal gallery and it's like, you've got a bust, you got six feet, you got the next bust, you got six. There it's like <laughs> three or four or five rows high. They're like six inches apart, not six feet apart. And then the like the hallway is like the longest hallway you've ever seen, you know? And you will make exactly the same experience in Florence if you go visit the Uffizi. Okay. You no, know, where the Botticelli is and so yeah. on. I mean, uh, it's the thing is when you visit these museums in Italy is that you have the art, but the building themselves are art. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so you don't know where to look at. And uh, I miss that so much right now, I must admit. So we are kind of having the same experience, even though I'm just like two hours away from Italy. <laughs> Too fun. Well, tell us about this new book. High Impact Tools for Teams, new book in the Strategizer series. And maybe just to give a little context, in the Strategizer series, a great work has been done to develop tools that help team deliver innovative products and services. With this book and Alex, so we are co-authors, we decided, to, we decided to cover the human side of an innovation journey, because in the end, innovation is delivered by humans. And we thought that would nicely complement the product and services side, like to give tools that help teams, innovative teams, go through the innovation journey in a better and smoother way. And that's why we call them high impact tools for teams because they're super applied. And, you know, innovative teams, they take a lot of uncertainty in their face. They have to work under tight timelines with a lot of constraints. All that creates a mix of external factors that can have a big impact on the relationship and the atmosphere in the team. And we thought like we, yeah, uh, it was about time to deliver something to make this journey better for everyone in the team and happy to discuss more as we, we talk, the tools that are in there and what they do precisely and how everyone can use them. Well, I'm really excited that you guys have stuck, you know, you're staying with this same very visual format of book. I mean, I'd never heard of Alexander Ostweiler before Business Model Generation. And when that book came out, I just thought like, where was this 15 years earlier? This would have saved me and my partners so much time and anxiety and consternation to have like had this laid out for us to to more more directly acknowledge what need to happen and the assumptions we're making and this kind of stuff you know i think one of the biggest compliments for everything you guys are doing over strategizer we had steve blank on the show recently and mm -hmm. you know for, for listeners who don't know who he is you know famous stanford professor for 20 years wrote all these great best-selling books built 
but but real world experience built eight startups its last one i think sold for 8 billion dollars and you know the fame of the lean startup and all this stuff he doesn't need to go telling talking about how great everyone else is but he just has a ton of respect for what you guys have done over there and and we talked about it on the show but tell people a bit more about your background and and how this came about in the first place well i'm i'm a project management professor but before i went back to teaching in swiss universities i've been head of e business for financial institutions where i helped develop the whole online presence and that's where sort of the idea of these tools was born a long time ago actually 15 years ago because i was jumping from one department to the other doing cross functional projects as you have to deliver digital we were among the rare actually visiting everyone in the organizations and that's where we realized that at least with my team that we had to do tools that help cross functional teams function better to deliver innovation so after these years of uh, digital game came back i i i've been as a person always unable to choose between academia and the private sector i like them both so i think the the pragmatism of the private sector where you have to deliver concrete solutions to concrete problem is excellent however i also like to have these breaks and the time to reflect that you have in academia when you want to really analyze a problem in these deepest roots so that uh, you don't have that problem repeating itself over and over because you didn't really fix it So my life is just a back and forth between these two and I think the book reflects that and to come back to I'm glad you mentioned the visual aspect of the book first of all we're visual thinkers all of us at strategizer we think visually and we believe that it's probably one of the most effective way to to treat complex information as a team like to have it out there visually for everybody so that everyone can see what the others can see so that is, that is kind of second nature for us but it's true that delivering book like these takes a lot of iteration so the book you know every double page we call it a spread and every page is thought almost cinematographically <laughs> so we at least for high impact tools for teams for each spread we had about like 15 versions working with visual designers until we reached the level of uh, simplicity aesthetics we wanted to reach also for pedagogical reason when you have a like a good illustration you know that saying a picture is worth a thousand words well we definitely believe in that okay i do have one suggestion for you though to bring back to alex okay <laughs> which is i love the visual experience you know being a, you know being an illustrator myself and designer myself i i i identify with that i enjoy that but i would love an audiobook of it for reinforcement to to you know while i'm while i'm driving whatever to like cuz the the books that i really enjoy i'll listen to 5 and 10 and sometimes 20 times trying to indoctrinate myself and get it into long term memory so this is my this is my one thing of like i know you need the visuals to get it but after i've got it an audio would be helpful for my reinforcement so well just it's correct and i'm totally with you on that i would see an audio version of this to explain for example stories or examples of how people have used the tools and have testimonials for that i believe in nature it's two different things an audiobook you like to hear to the stories and maybe learn what people have learned from applying it and so on but when it comes to almost a user manual you know i, I just bought a new camera <laughs> a new sony camera 
would you would you <laughs> would you listen to the user manual as an audio not not the first time <laughs> i wouldn't i wouldn't the first time but what i'm saying is after i've been through it and i've got the mental map in my head yeah so just so you know like there's there's some other books like this and i go buy the kindle version and i do text to speech on my phone because people they think oh it won't work for the first time somebody reads it so they never come out with the audiobook so i listen to the books but robot voice from my phone because I've got the mental image in my head already. I just need the reminder. I just need the, I just need to be reviewing the concepts, but I'm driving, I'm flying, I'm whatever. So that's my, that's my application part. Um, Great advice. And we'll put that on a backlog, <laughs> on our backlog. Great yeah, advice. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. So <laughs> it's, just my, it's my audio soapbox. So let's talk about some different concepts. You know, I was watching one of your other interviews you've done already and an individual concept I'd love to have our listeners hear about is this idea of like, you know, there's so much uncertainty. There's so many opportunities for friction when somebody's innovating, when they're doing something new. This idea of like starting with ground rules, like instead of unread unwritten rules, like written rules, like, hey, how do we make this work for everybody? Can you talk about this concept or, or correct the way I said it? Yeah, you said it totally correctly. Well, when you assemble a cross-functional team, this is one of the tools we present in the book. We come from different disciplines. So we have different perspectives uh, and different practices. One thing that surprised us and we learned over time huh, managing and delivering projects is that if you take some time just very early on in a project to just sit together <laughs> beyond a poster whether it's in a digital whiteboard or on a physical board and we just respond to these two questions together as a team quickly what are the rules and behaviors that we want to abide by in our team and two, me as an individual, do I have any preferences to work in a certain way? And then we put it out there for everybody. You've just made the, the rest of the journey a lot more easier. Why? Because as again, we have these different backgrounds, which is a richness, it can turn into, a prob into problems because everyone is presupposing that the others will work the way we work. And just that very fact of sitting in front of that tool we call the team contract for a few minutes helps put it out there for everybody. Then the rules of the game are known and they've been negotiated together. And that has a big impact. We've experienced it ourselves on so-called psychological safety. So the fact that the, the rules of the game are transparent, and then I know that uh, this notion of psychological A safety that has been developed by a lot by Amy Edmondson, that the group is a safe place for me and that will, the group will support me in case of problem and in case of failure is a, is a key prerequisite for any innovation journey. And, and well, that's what we did with the team contract. So, and that is one aspect, the relational aspect of things. But there is another aspect also to refer back to what you were saying in terms of basics. We rediscovered mutual understanding, this very idea that perception gaps are not necessarily good for executing a project. If we see different things and my work depends on your work and we don't do something to align our perceptions on what has to be done, then you might enter into some of these terrible statistics that uh, kind of, uh, this comes from Atlassian, that 50% of meetings are perceived as useless or as a waste of time, or that 75% of cross-functional teams are dysfunctional. So here again, another poster called the team alignment map, where 
all of us can frequently, as frequently as needed, just integrate and renegotiate our contribution as we progress through the uncertainty of the innovation journey. You know, it's such an important word, uncertainty. I think, I think it is, I think it is when one of the, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, but it feels like one of the things that is so tough about startups or doing something innovative, could be in a charity or wherever, is this, this temptation to take systems from a business or an organization where there is certainty, where we know if we build it, it will get bought, where we know who the customers are, where we know the pricing, all this, to take those systems and just copy and paste over here, even though we don't know those things, right? And you think about the evolution, like, you know, I, I, I have, I've had, a, you know, a couple of businesses I started made very large amounts of money. And then the, like another dozen of them were total catastrophes, right? And I think like how much friction comes from not doing what you just said of like, hey, we start this thing and we all kind of think we know what we're going to do, except what we're actually doing changes. Like, like the whole organization changes. And yet we don't necessarily, okay, on my teams, we haven't had explicit conversations about, hey, now that we're playing a different sport, are we going to play the same? Are we going to try and play the same positions? Does that position even exist anymore? You know, and and we just, in the name of efficiency, I have made so many assumptions that end up not being efficient in the end because of the friction, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Like uh, these certainties of the beginning, then they create a lot more uncertainty. Probably sometimes it depends on the journey later on. Again, the, the whole idea here is to put it out there together as a team in two different areas. One is what is the challenge we want to address as a team and what, is, what does everyone's contribution look like as we enter into this uncertainty? So how do you, where do you think you can contribute best? Where do I think I can contribute that best? But that presupposes that our mission is somehow clarified. So, and then we start talking about the mission. And then, you know, so this all alignment process, we believe is crucial to navigate together. By definition, innovation, it's never, it's not been done before. So how do you create this mindset? We're all in this together. And we admit that we don't know, and we're going to find out. Uh, and how do we integrate the learnings we have that help us progressively move out of this uncertainty? That's the whole idea behind the team alignment map and the team contract, which are, I, I, for our listeners, I'd like to uh, be very precise. These do not replace any of your existing framework or methodologies. It's just plugins that you can use if you're a Scrum fan or a less fan or a safe fan or, or, or from a more traditional waterfall project management approach. Like these, these complement and they help really, the, the whole idea is to empower every team member, take care of his or her own contribution and also of the contribution of others. And they're there to be used. Do you recommend this being like a physical poster that's on a wall? Or is this a digital thing for diversified, you know, for, for distributed teams that they're physically looking at from time to time? What is that? What is that form factor? The form, well, of course, well, again, the, the basic principle is have it visually out there. Why? Because if uh, two things, have it visually out there and let's plan together. That's the innovation huh, for us. Let's do these things together and not individually and send us, send us files via email and so on. The impact is uh, a lot more different when we are co-planning, co-establishing the rules of the game because we have a chance to ask questions and we have, a, we have a, a, the latitude to negotiate or rephrase or this if we function in ping pong mode and so on, we do not create so-called common ground. <laughs> 
or we do not have evidence of common ground. Now, there are many studies out there. I'm not just going to quote that too much, but actually common ground is one of the primary engine of collective power. Psycholinguists describe common ground as a mutual knowledge. So what you and me know that we both know, we both know, sorry. And that has immense consequences on, on two things, basically, how the, the type of journey we enter in, the type of commitment we have, and also how we divide the work and we integrate the parts. So you see, these are mechanical parts of the work, but we're human beings. How does that work from a human perspective? The fact of being efficient, delivering fast, being on the same page, and so on. Well, you have to go and look on how we understand each other, how we coordinate each other, and that's what these posters help do. So yes, visually out there for good cognitive reason and good coordination reasons. You know, coordination has Latin roots. We come back to Italy. <laughs> it means the well-functioning of parts and communication, another word, Latin roots as well, to put in common. So uh, <laughs> to do that together jointly, when it matters the most, namely at the beginning of any initiative, that's where we need a strong boost as a team to align our different perceptions. Then as the project unfolds, it becomes different. As we learn more and more, we don't need necessarily to have that for updates, but like to inflate the balloon to have a nice flight in the beginning. Yes, go visually, poster. And that can be easily replicated online today. There are technologies I couldn't dream of when I did my, actually I did my PhD in remote teamwork a long time ago. I couldn't dream of the technologies we have today, but you have to wisely pick your communication channels, especially when you start a project. So the winning combination is really have a video conferencing system doubled with a digital whiteboard. When you have that, you have like the communication channel, but you also have the co-construction channel where people can visually build. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That makes a lot of sense. You know, talking about your PhD for one second, we've you know for, for different reasons my my team my my our our real estate fund is four of us partners okay two in canada one in utah one in hawaii right now and then our our ceo is also in utah and my my partner john who started out as my mentor like 19 years ago right we we started off working together me and me in california him in canada so we've done distributed ever since and even when i moved home to canada we still live 3 year, 3 hours apart and he was only in the same office as me you know I don't know, four to 10 days a month kind of thing. So we, we've done this forever. But I, I have struggled with the thing that a lot of other folks struggle with, which is like staff accountability and, and like full engagement when there's so many temptations of being home and visually nobody knows that you're not actually getting anything done right now. I'm interested if you have any advice for remote work of, you know, people who are feeling like, man, we are getting less done than we did when we were in an office together. Yeah, at least I can share what we've learned working with teams, remote teams during the pandemic. But there are two questions in your question. One is about the accountability. And just a, a quick mention on, on that. Accountability is not something you, you infuse top down. <laughs> accountability comes from participation. <laughs> Okay, it's a different story. Again, that's why we, 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 we have this obsession with creating spaces for people to participate and co-create. So that's one thing, whether it's used remotely or physically. Now, to come back to your uh, question about remote teams, there is one big mistake we have seen happening during this pandemic is that some many teams we worked with use precious online meeting time for updates. Mm. And they and 
they use like uh, Slack channels or emails or even messaging to initiate new projects. We believe and we know this is a big mistake because if you Google media richness theory, you will quickly find out that not all communication channels have the same impact on alignment. And actually, it should be the other way around. Whenever you start something new, please go face-to-face -face and have a digital whiteboard together because that's when the perception gap are, are the gaps are the, the, the bigger, the biggest. Then once we have evidence that we are aligned, so everyone is nodding, yes, I, everyone has asked questions and so on, then we have reached maybe probably sufficient alignment and then we can use lower impact communication channels just to notify about the updates and the changes which is mostly the asynchronous communication channels but not the other way around and i have uh, like tons of stories i could tell you about surprises that teams had that mostly rely on asynchronous channels to start new things when uh, perception gaps are all over and then then you enter into execution problems and these execution problems are, you know, they're almost predictable because you're using a very limited bandwidth to come back to this air balloon metaphor to inflate the mutual knowledge we need to fly <laughs> together as a team and, 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 and coordinate with each other. So use the communication, synchronous communication channels to start anything new or when there is anything new, and then asynchronous for updates, but not the other way around. This is uh, something we've noticed during the pandemic. Yeah, that's helpful. You know, even for this show, we have a morning call, and it's typically really short of, you know, where are we at for episodes? Where are we at for editing? Who's posting what? You know, like, are there any problems kind of thing? And even you just saying that makes me think like, yeah, why don't we have a, like, even if we had a group text, there was like updates come out. If the update was out two minutes ahead of the call and the call was to deal with stuff we actually need to talk person to person about, you know, like th that makes sense in just even that tiny example for me. Yeah, you can feel it <laughs> then as a remote team worker. There is maybe one other point I'd like to mention also about remote teamwork, something we've seen during the pandemic. This is more for large corporations than startup and people into innovation. In large organizations, I mean, where some practices and processes are established, remote teamwork, at least the way we experience it, is not new for us. What is new is the number of people <laughs> who had to migrate from another way of working into what we know and we've been knowing for some time. So what we've seen also is this disconnect between those people who know how to master these tools and those who don't. And especially for large organizations, when I'm working with them, I'm really insisting on, on upgrading the skills of everybody so that there is not that disconnect. Because when you come back home and like for many years, you'll be used to work one way and all of a sudden you get like, first of all, this laptop to connect to your entire organization with a screen that is 13 inch. It might be too small, first of all then you might not have the necessary equipment and you, you might not have been trained to use these new co-construction tools like digital whiteboards, Miro, Mural, the strategizer platform, InVision, Mock Plus, and you name it. So for large organizations, again, this idea of bringing, uh, upgrading, there is a training challenge here as well. Sure. You know, I'm interested, your time doing digital transformation, this, you know, $500 billion financial institution you're at. What, how do you pronounce their, their name? Sorry? The, the bank, the financial institution you used to work at, is it Piquet? Yeah, it's one of the five largest institutions in Switzerland, yes. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, a, a private bank. Yeah. 
So, you know, thinking about your time at a big, you know, $500 billion plus financial institution or, or <laughs> later advising a Rothschild, HSBC, these kind of folks. What do you feel like that? Ha- how do you feel like that helped prepare you for what you're doing now? Well, it's been, it's been definitely an amazing, well, a lifetime would say learning experience because first of all, you have super competent people in all their different departments, but also they're very specialized. So you have, again, to learn how to immerse yourself in different departments. So like a credit department has nothing really in common, I don't know, with the private equity department or the tax people. (laughs) These are very different profiles. So as my time spent designing e-banking system, basically, and, and all sorts of internal applications really helped me develop this cross-functional view of things. And the impact, the, the, maybe if I could use a metaphor, I've learned during my time in the financial industry that I had to consider projects more like a rocket on a launch pad. So do all your best to align everybody in the beginning before pushing the button start. <laughs> and when sufficient level of alignment is reached between all the multiple stakeholders, because in the end, from a client perspective, it doesn't matter in which department you work. Okay. So when you look at the services where they're presented, they're presented from a customer needs basis, no matter how many departments they cross. So when you have to deliver and like flip the organization from functional to user-centric, the, maybe from a practitioner perspective, one of the biggest takeaways, align as much as you can early on. And when you reach what I would say beautiful, le- elegant levels of alignment, so basically the, the, the test is this. You ask many different contributors of the project in different departments what this project is all about, and you get similar responses. So when you reach that level, at least I have two or three experiences where once the project has started, we have delivered ahead of schedule and I felt I was useless as a project manager (laughs) because, again, this initial boost. So a lot of negotiation in the early stages. And also one thing I have learned is not force the organization. So not uh, push. You know, when we launched the whole online presence for Picte, again, it's one, one of the big players here in Switzerland. One year later, we've been awarded like a best financial website in Europe by the Financial Times and the Schweizer Bank. And so we've delivered, but we never forced the organization. So we deliver ahead of schedules and we won prizes. How? By... Uh, investing in this initial alignment and making sure that everyone was heard in the beginning. So it's a little slower in the beginning because all these conversations must take place. But once the conversations have taken place, gosh, the execution is a (laughs) non-event. Very different mindset. Yeah, this one is one of the key learnings I've learned, yeah. It's almost like go slow to go fast, huh? Yeah, that's true. Now that I hear you, I've never reflected in that way. Thank you for asking the question, by the way. It makes me think about the analogy of like, when we've got to get something done, you know, I can be kind of like a ready fire aim, kind of get like I'm a, I'm a high activity guy, right? And it's almost like, oh, we need to go here. You know, oh, we need to go to New York. Quick, hop on the bicycle, get start pedaling, you know, versus like, hey, let's drive the wrong direction and sit in this other building for like two hours and not make any progress. But if we do that, we get to get on this round tube of metal that will fly us there, right? 
Well, that's true. And it's almost the debate between classic project management and agile trial and error and learn as you go. It's true. It depends on the context and the type of project. But I must admit, again, in an established organization that is like of a certain size and that has legal obligations and so on, you have like a high level of repetitive work that are supposed to be done, complex operations going on. You can't just, I mean, that was my experience, arrive and say, oh, everything has to change overnight. Don't forget that who's paying you, who's paying your salary? <laughs> well, these things you want to change. So it's, you know, we're talking maybe about two, I, I really must recognize the notion of context here. So I was talking about established organizations. Now, when we developed the book together with the strategizer team, it was a totally different mindset. There's been a lot of trial and error. Of course, when we designed the two tools, imagine the team contract, for example, that tool to uh, align on behaviors. We had like, when we started, it had 11 columns. Now it's a circle within a square. It took like three years <laughs> to, to get to a circle within a square. So we had no clue so you know you experiment you have an idea of what you want to deliver so but the idea is to recognize the different types of journeys yeah and be and basically there are three yeah if you read the fearless Organi organization from amy edmondson again the harvard professor who did her amazing work on psychological safety there are basically three types of journey and if you recognize that you know in which playing mode you should put yourself so one is complex repetitive tasks uh, so if the organization is coded for that, just like don't stress it too much <laughs> right now. Then you have complex operations, typically in hospital. So there is some important rules to be respected, but there is also a part of uncertainty. And then you have innovation and research. These are almost different traveling modes. <laughs> when you launch a project. And again, one of the things we see here is particularly when these collide, they, they don't mix together well. You know, I love that. I mean, but I see it, I see it completely applying to agile in the sense of if, if people can't at least get aligned on the destination we're all trying to achieve, right? And what, what we're all gonna get out of it, should we achieve that destination? I mean, multiple iterations just feels like multiple opportunities for friction. Oh, yes, of course they are. But, you know, I consider myself as part of the Agile family. However, would you build a house, which is a very clear mission, in Agile mode? Okay, mm. so let's agree on a budget and then, okay, let's do the basement. But you have no idea of the first floor. You have no idea of the second floor. And at, at each floor, we renegotiate with the resources available, how the, the next floor is going to look like. So, you know, here again, you know, Agile is great for uncertainty, but if you want to maintain things to get a very precise result under known conditions at a fixed price, I am not totally sure that Agile is the best way to go. I would highly recommend you to go and take a PMI class and learn how to do a project charter before you sign on both sides. So you see, it depends on the type of journey in which you are. I believe, actually, this brings us maybe to a very important point. That is also part of the strategizer's uh, philosophy. The idea is to have a toolbox, solid and large enough, because in the end, you are the pilot. You understand the type of project, you understand the, 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 the context. And uh, some tools are better for some things and some approaches of work are better for others. The, the, the success as a team, in our opinion, is highly increased when our individual toolbox is rich so that we can switch because journeys also move in between, you know, these different playing modes. 
So again, here in that case, it's about creating and designing these tools and then training everyone so that everyone can apply these tools. But in the end, you pick the ones. But this idea of having a large toolbox for very different situations, and then you pick them. So yeah, back to well, what we're doing. Yeah, no, no, I, I think that's, I, I completely agree. Get the right tool for the job, you know? So tell me this, what's another one of the, you know, to you, one of the other most, most impactful concepts in the book? If I can quickly mention two. If you ever participated in these uh, large initial meetings where we ideate and, and, and launch all sorts of directions to explore a, a tool very important that uh, my opinion is in the book is called the fact finder. It's a tool to ask good questions. And it has, it has been built for those uh, listeners who know it on a neuro-linguistic programming engine. And it's, it contains very simple question to bring assumptions or judgments or some sort of generalizations, everybody, things like that, all of them, you know, back to the facts. Observable this, is a, this is a digital tool? What, what is this? No, this is a checklist. It's almost okay. so it's not a poster this time. So this is a more a tool for you to be a better contributor and ask good questions when you feel lost in the conversation. I believe it's a very important tool. Uh, ask good questions, especially in, in the early stages. But this is actually the tool I use the most every day. And then there is another tool called the nonviolent request guide. Uh, guide. Whoever worked in innovation team, uh, we know that cooperation and conflict are part of these journeys. And it's okay. It's okay to disagree and to have different views. What is not okay is not to turn these into constructive conflict. When our emotions run high, especially when we get closer to deadlines or when budget is burning too fast, the idea of the nonviolent request guide is to help each of us prepare to exchange in an aggressive way our disagreement and manage conflict constructively. So it's a template, very simple. So this is not a poster where we sit together, but it's something for you to prepare on how to express things not to damage relationships while being heard. <laughs> okay, the nonviolent request guide. Yeah. Have you read have you read Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication? Yeah, it's built on nonviolent communication. Absolutely. Okay. That's why we call it the nonviolent. <laughs> I was I was hoping that there would be a relationship. <laughs> Yeah, I think yeah, that yeah. is one of the most important books of my life. That and Terry Warner's book called Bonds That Make Us Free. Like the biggest conflicts in my life, you know, lawsuits for hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, or in some cases millions, you know, big, big problems. Those two books, I like are so good at helping me like see my, see my role in the conflict and see how I'm making things worse and own my part of it, which is the biggest invitation for them to want to own their part of it, Right. And anyways, that, that no, book no, it's true. It's annoyed true. me. The, the first 50% of that book annoyed me. I was like, what is this, like a hippie from the 60s? I don't get it. And then the second half, I was like, oh my gosh, this is solid gold. This is the best stuff ever. Absolutely. And uh, it changed my life too. So that's why we decided to do a tool with this. We, we basically made a, we simplified because, you know, nonviolent communication is an important field and, and takes some time to be acquired. By the way, I don't know if you read the story, but what is the number one thing Satya Nadella did to turn Microsoft's culture around when I don't know. he became the CEO? He offered Marshall Rosenberg's book to his board. <laughs> You're kidding. No, I'm not kidding. You can Google that. You will find plenty of references about it. And wow. that also inspired us to create a, an easy, simple template 
everyone can use to put that in practice in the case of conflict management. Very important resource. So, okay, the book in total contains five tools that everyone can use. Some are posters, some are more for us as individuals for being better contributors. And yeah, it's out there. <laughs> I love it. Well, tell people the best places if they want to learn more about the book or they want to connect with you. What are the best places online for that? Naturally, the Strategizer website, strategizer.com slash teams. And there is also my personal blog where I test some ideas, uh, teamalignment.co, not .com. And if I'm allowed, then I can issue a call here. As I mentioned earlier, basically this book contains a lot of the errors I, I at least made personally as a project manager and did not want to make again. And then we developed tools for that. But if I had these collaboration tools, if I had received these collaboration tools early in life, I think my professional journey would, been, would have been significantly different. So we're launching this project to teach collaboration in schools and if there is anyone volunteering to uh, help us so the idea is to develop a kit to teach collaboration for professors and teachers with games and, and, and plays and all sorts and we've already assembled uh, a global team so that we want to cover different cultures and if anyone is interested in joining that team to deliver a free kit for teaching collaboration in schools please uh, reach out uh, to me, and I will connect you with Sumaya, who is leading that project. And do you want them to what, connect with you on LinkedIn or email you? or what's Yeah, on LinkedIn. Way? LinkedIn is a great way to reach me or on teamalignment.co. So there is the contact form. Please do not hesitate. So the project has started and we hope we can deliver something by the end of the year or maximum next year. That's great. Well, one of my favorite questions lately to ask people is, what's one of the best pieces of advice you ever received? Ah, probably coming from my dad. Your strength is your team. Hmm. Yeah. Why do you think... Go, go ahead. Yeah, he integrated early on this notion that to solve complex problems, we have to team up. And what was his profession? He was a watchmaker in uh, probably the most famous brand in Switzerland, <laughs> a watch brand in Switzerland. So, and, you know, to develop a watch is a complex project, especially at that level. So he worked at Rolex for many years. And he totally got it. He, he was in charge of, you know, turning prototypes into industrial production. That was his job. And yeah, his piece of advice is like, yeah, team up, team up and make the team feel good. So, and I'm not surprised now that I wrote Impact Tools for Teams with Alex. Good advice from my dad early on in my career, by the way. Yeah. Why do you think that so many of us that are kind of overachievers or, or independent minded to begin with, why do you think that we struggle to slow down and, and do things more like a team sport? Why do you think that we end up like the, you know, with a team of helpers instead of like a real team? Well, that's a big question. I don't know. I would have to look at specific examples or if you give me an example, maybe we can open. That's, that's, uh, that's, I would need an example for that. Yeah. Well, okay. So many organizations, there's, there's somebody like me on the team who is the visionary. He's the guy who can land the big sales. He's the guy who can recruit the top talent he, and, and maybe have a gift for seeing things before other people. And, and as a result, instead of like taking the time to help everybody see what I see. So for, I'll give you an example. One of the things we're doing in commercial real estate, we're focused right now on, hey, can we do like Warren Buffett style investments of go after the unpopular stuff and try and find the, the diamond in the rough, right? The, 
the good investments across things that people have decided must be terrible because everything there is terrible, right? But when it comes to fundraising, rather than just going to the biggest institutions, we can see what's happened in Canada with with the what, what you would call the crowdfunding marketplace now before crowdfunding was a thing. I mean, they raised billions of dollars in what's called the exempt market in Canada, which was illegal for 80 years in, in the States. Mm-hmm. And people are bare. I mean, the, the crowdfunding, equity crowdfunding laws have been around since 2013, 2016, different ones got booked. It has made a scratch of difference here. Hardly anybody has caught on, right? And what we've seen in Canada could very, very easily be applied here. And, and you know, using the media like Red Bull or Bloomberg to like, or, or you know, closer to you, I don't know if, do you know Yiska Bank? Have you heard of them? No, sorry. They're in, uh, oh shoot, I can't remember if it's Belgium or Denmark. But essentially, instead of paying for advertising, they built their own TV network. Mm-hmm. And they almost get free advertising by becoming the news, right? Yeah, okay. So, okay. This idea of like, nobody has to explain who Bloomberg is because they became the media. They don't have to pay for advertising. Everything they do is advertising, right? So combining some of these concepts together and tying them together sometimes has been, it takes a lot of convincing for me to get investors, other partners, staff to see where we're going. And so it just feel, it's like, do you teach your four-year-old to clean up the mess or do you just clean it up for them? You know, so I can get frustrated and just tell people what to do instead of spending the time to help them really catch on to the vision. And it just feels efficient. And I get that sometimes you should just clean up the mess. But I think a fault of mine has been many times not teaching the four-year-old to clean up the mess of not spending the time to help people really come to their own conclusions why it's such a good strategy instead of just hand out assignments. It depends on your time frame. Both modes are valid depending on the situation. However, I'd like to quote one of the quotes in the book, which is from a psycholinguistic in psycholinguistics professor in Stanford called Herb Clark. He says, working together itself takes work. Now, <laughs> sometimes because you have to go fast, you might want to do it yourself. Now, in some other cases, um, not investing in teamwork then might become difficult to sustain for you as an individual over the long term. So I believe it's a mix of both depending on the situation. I totally recognize that in an urgency situation, so well, <laughs> unless the team has been trained, someone like must take action and, and, and fix it. However, if you want to build something sustainable, you better invest that time in helping others understand because like you will start feeling your shoulders become lighter and lighter. <laughs> so depends on, I would say on the time pressure and the situation, but that's true. Working together itself takes work, but it's more sustainable in the long run. I Not for every that. moment. I feel like, yeah, I appreciate that. I feel like my takeaway is I probably rationalize too many times. Oh, I just need to do it this time. You know, my, my ratio of do it myself versus, versus do the work of working together, I probably rationalize that too often. I probably need to look at my ratio. Well, Jess, you know, there are enough psychological studies out there that analyze burnout. (laughs) Okay, so as, again, delegation becomes difficult and projects become complex, then you might, and, you know, I don't know, I'm just hypothetically making an example, but like end up doing almost too many things at once in parallel all the time and like everything converged to you. So, you know, you don't want to enter into uh, the stress zone and stay there for too long because then, I mean, there is not, I mean, it can lead to certain burnouts level. So again, it depends on the situation. I mean, that's my message. 
But if you definitely want to enter into something more like sustainable and stable, that I believe that the weight of complex problem solving should be carried together. And for that, back to square one, it takes time to invest in this collaboration. But it means also that it's slower in the beginning. That's true. That's true. So you're t- so now I got to be more patient too. <laughs> <laughs> Please be. <laughs> yeah, See, again, it depends. <clears throat> but definitely an advice if you want to build something that like takes time and is very complex. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, the benefit, the acceleration you get is in a second step, largely compensate the problems you have to fix because of insufficient alignment at the beginning, largely. Sure. Well, thanks again for doing this. Congratulations on the new book. Thank you. And appreciate you having, coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Bye, everyone.